All right, what's going on, everyone? We're back with episode four of Generation Kill. I'm Preston Stewart, joined again by Sayer Payne. Sayer, thanks for being here, man. Glad to be here. So uh, quick 30-second catch-up. Um, don't time me because I feel like it won't be 30 seconds, but uh, Sayer and I were in the Army together in the 101st Airborne, uh, deployed together in Afghanistan 2010-11, and a little while ago started diving into some of these historical movies, or I should say series, Started with the Band of Brothers, now moving on to Generation Kill. Just using the series, which are all based on true events, kind of using the series as a backdrop to talk about, you know, hopefully some some intricacies of war, um, not designed to critique tactics so much as just some of the maybe looked over parts of these conflicts. So if you want to follow this one along in order, we've we've put the previous three out. They're not back-to-back-to-back. We've been interspersing them with other interviews and other podcasts, but one, two, and three are out there, and it's worth getting in number four, Combat Jack. I don't think I'm going to describe what that term means. We'll let people watch the episode for that. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Try to keep it G-rated here. Mm -hmm. Um, To get started, I got a comment on Instagram from Mikey Romero asking about a term that you use a lot, Sayer. Um, mm-hmm. I think I use it a lot too, but I'm going to pin this one on you. Violence of action. And he said, what exactly does that mean? Do you mind rambling for a little bit on violence of action? Sure. I'm sure I said it a hundred times in the Band of Brothers one because, I mean, I like the tactics part, by the way. Not armchair quarterbacking, but I like seeing sort of tactics in play and seeing best practices and then maybe calling out some, whoa, what the heck? You're not supposed to do that type of thing. It's not good. You get people killed if you do that. Um, But, you know, violence of action to me is the point where uh, decision, decisiveness takes action, takes shape. And essentially we're talking life and death scenarios where hesitation is what gets people killed. And so um, an example of violence of action in play is going to be when you're, if you're taking fire from a building and the SOP at that area is to, if you take fire from a building, you take the building. Okay. Violence of action is you're not stopping until you get guys on the rooftop and it's cleared. Nothing is going to get in your way or deter that. And that might, and, and that's the, uh, the really, the tough part of it is because that means if people drop in a doorway, you're stepping over them. And you are continuing until you get on top of that roof. It is um, constant pressure because once you make this decision, these sort of split second decisions, there's no thinking. It's just doing because an example, let's say of violence of action, not occurring and hesitation and people getting killed band of brothers, uh, Foy, when we've got um, Lieutenant Dyke, when he's uh, clamming up, when they're supposed to take that town and they're just hesitating. So that's not, that's violence of action, not occurring. And it's a term used in the military because you're always preaching violence of action because you have to have decisiveness and then you have to execute. Um, We've heard Godfather in this series talk about violence of action too. And again, it's a double-edged sword because um, it doesn't necessarily, it could be misinterpreted to, um, burning and raising a village, let's say, and justified that way. And that's not the way I'm trying to employ that term. It really means 
go forth without hesitation because the orders have been given. I think an example, correct me if I'm wrong, Sayer, in this series could be in the previous episode when they're taking the airfield and the Humvees get online and they think there might be tanks. Well, there are tanks. They're just not manned. And they don't creep up to the berm and kind of poke their heads over and say, there are tanks. Now we have to change plans. The plan is in place. They hit that berm at 30 miles an hour, jump onto the airfield, guns online, assaulting through. Is that? It's absolutely, it's execution. Another real quick example, um, near side ambush. What that means is let's picture guys just walking in a line and file on a road. And all of a sudden on one side of the road, they start taking uh, shots. And it's near side because they're within hand grenade distance. So it's a heavy baseball. So if you can throw a heavy baseball that distance, it's a near side. And what you do isn't to take cover and, and, and try, because that's kind of human instinct. This is just kind of, um, a, what the hell's going on? People are shooting at me. Freeze, take cover, uh, get your wits about you, and then sort of make a decision. Well, that will get people killed in this environment. You cannot hesitate. So the violence of action piece is going to be you turn towards whoever are shooting at you and you run towards them and overrun their position because they are stationary and you are not. And you have to overrun them in the hail of bullets. And and the only way that that would work, because you're already screwed. Think about it. You are already getting lit up when you weren't planning on it. So it's you. But you got to do something. Um, and you know, that is violence of action. You have to go hundred percent. Awesome. Appreciate it, man. Um, so hopefully that answered your question, Mikey. Uh, if there's more, throw them in the Instagram comments, YouTube, um, yeah. find one of us. So sure. Anything else? Yeah. I mean, I think um, both of us try to demilitarize some of our terms, but you just never know if we just like, cause we'll throw out PL and stuff and platoon leader. And, and I know we kind of flesh that one out, but there's always terms that are comfortable for us that are ingrained that may not be so for everybody else. Yep. And once we get going, I know I use some of those uh, probably more than I should. It, it, it's kind of the thought of somebody who's, I, I get stuck in the thought that somebody who's listening to this episode has listened to the last 50 episodes we put out. So they, when I say, you know, Republican guard, I don't have to go back and say, Oh, that was the uniformed Iraqi forces because they should know that from 72 episodes ago. But um that's not how podcasts work, right? Somebody might be listening to right. them today. So apologies in advance for all the stuff we we fly past, but send us notes. We'll try to try to cover those. So one thing I thought was interesting, I was gonna say, I'll say funny at the beginning of the episode is Encino Man, the company commander, is coming around. And there's a couple scenes with him in this one. It's an interesting episode because they kind of shift the main characters a little bit, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it follows mm-hmm. some people that, that it, it hasn't really focused in on for the last few. But Encino Man's coming around and he gives this really awkward speech about, I'm here to listen to you because I care about you. And it almost made me think, if you have to say that, there's something wrong, maybe. Mm-hmm. You have to reiterate that. Um, but he asked the guys... What do you think? What's on your mind? And he got more than he bargained for. The medic finally spoke up. Um, thought that was worth talking about because getting that kind of feedback is important. But if you push for the feedback in public like that, it's not always going to be good. 
Well, and that, I think that's the company medic too. And, you know, in a healthy environment, leadership environment, that's the headquarters unit. They all should be sort of tied together and in a way smoking and joking and having some sort of friendly banter type relationship, in my opinion, because they all travel together. They're always sort of with each other and they're going to be riding in the same trucks together. They're going to be sleeping in the same hooch type setup area. Um, but this sort of shows that that's not happening. So he's kind of this loner and being a leader is a lonely job. You know, there's no one, there is no other captain. He's the captain. He's the commander. The first sergeant isn't a peer, even though he's a partner. Um, but you can just see the, uh, he is on an island for sure. He is on an island for sure. And, um, and then the, that, that goes back to the art of leadership and tact and how, how you communicate with your, let's say, subordinates. I don't know a better word to describe that um, relationship. But I was glad to see it, too, because I was glad to see the uh, medic chime in and, and speak truth in these times. And I think there's a lot of, and you have to, I think you have to, um, because these are life and death type situations and like holding your tongue and these sort of things. I, I don't agree with it. I really don't. I think this type of stuff needs to be fleshed out. And, um, and it, because if not, they're already talking about it anyway, it already exists. And a guy that's this aloof, he's an obstacle and you either go over, under, or through them. And I would guess after conversations like this, people are going to have more agency to do what they feel is the right thing, those at the lower level, and they're just going to have to skirt such an incompetent commander. And I think we actually do see that sort of happen with the very next team leader in a different platoon who has the same sort of issue. Yeah, so I think it's worth saying that this isn't, I've never been in a unit where somebody shows up and on day one, one of their soldiers says something like this, you're incompetent. You have mm -hmm. to do a better job. It doesn't happen day one. It doesn't happen month one. Usually people are people, right? Um, and they usually give the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. for a period of time. It takes a while to learn these things. But when I saw that, I thought the failure, there's probably a couple of kinks in the, in the chain there. If you think about it for a soldier or Marine to say that to the company commander, it's not the first time they've thought it. Right. And they're fed up that nothing's being done. So we can see through these last few episodes that the medic's right. And people aren't doing anything about it. Or if they are doing something about it, they're not letting their soldiers know that they're working towards this issue, whatever it might be. And I think if you really step back, what you see is the lower enlisted medic talking with the company commander very bluntly. And then the next scene, you have an NCO talking with the captain, the platoon leader, the platoon commander, um, where he pulls him aside, pulls Captain America aside and says, if you do that again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to screw you up. Don't do that again. You're done. And it was equally as harsh. Yes, mate. But it was done in private. And it was at a lower, it was at a different level. It was closer yeah. to a peer level. That is the example of it working. Yes. Yes. But again, the incompetent aloof commander created the environment 
out in the open to begin with, you know, and, and he literally asked for it, um, which it's all feeds the same sort of disease that's going on with poor leadership in that company. Yeah, he's kind of grasping for straws. And, and I'm going to piece these two parts together. I want to go back to something in a second, but he eventually pulls the whole company together and gives him this, you know, oorah speech where he's saying, don't forget, those are the bad guys, not me. Um, they took your food, not me. It was just a really weird, weird. It, 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 it felt like, uh, feels like he's losing control. Well, yeah. And as compared to less, and I know we're skipping around here, but it's very similar to the BC godfather who lost the guide on he said it's my fault like he the, he said he did it. you know what i mean and it's, it's a precious guide on but he said we're going to make up for it with the streamers that we're going to earn and i'm not saying that that was the right answer or whatever um, no value judgment there but it's just a different onus it's not placing blame it's it is the buck stops here and then it's kind of the way forward which is um we're going to earn it back in a, in, a, in a different way. You know, it's lost. My fault, it's lost. But we're going to get it back. It's not blaming all that other shit and saying, guys, come on, guys. That's what the company commander did. And that's bullshit. I felt like he was trying to give like a pump up speech before they went out on a mission. And I, I, I don't know. I, I think movies do this a lot more than I ever experienced in real life where like you sit down and you give this, you know, let's go get them, you know go here we go charge type speech and i just kind of feel like in a lot of those situations if you've done your job letting your people know what's coming ahead what's at stake why you're doing that job if you've laid that all out correctly i think that rah rah speech is unnecessary true and, and silly sometimes it, it, it's a, yeah it, it can be it can be i the guide on thing, I feel like there was a rumor and it wasn't confirmed yet. And people were kind of shit talking and whispering. So he just, you know, confronting that, owning up to the mistake and then moving forward. To me, that's the lesson. Let's talk about the, uh, the tanks. They're looking out over the berm and a report comes in. You can laugh about it because it didn't happen. A report comes in that there are 140 T-72 tanks closing on their position 15 kilometers away. They'll be there in four minutes, five minutes. I don't know the math. Yeah, they'll be there soon. That's a bad day. Yeah. That's that telephone game of panicky news, too, by the way. All I could think of is if I'm sitting on that airfield with what those Marines had, and they told me that, I mean, if they told me a dozen tanks were coming my way, you imagine, like, you're gonna get, you're gonna get overrun. Maybe, I don't know. These guys had air assets, and they're freaking Marines, man. It's a fight. It's a yeah. fight. Um, there's nothing you can do about that fact. So, what else are you going to do besides gear up and get it on? Yeah. That's, That's where violence of action comes in play. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a little different experience than the uh, two abandoned tanks on the airfield. Uh, completely different. Completely different. <laughs> but, but by the way, when they were looking through the nods, I, I will say this. I will give myself credit. I was like, it looked stationary, like lights off in the distance, like a village would. You know what I mean? Like, like what are they even talking about? 
Um, and there's a part of this too, where um, a job well done is a understanding the terrain in front of you, mm-hmm. a handoff. So when the next guy comes on shift and he flips his nods down and looks out over this desert and sees 140 pairs of headlights, apparently driving towards you, he knows that's the village and it's been there all night and it's probably not coming towards us. Well, yeah, they're, and they're also recon. It's, it's sort of their job, you know? And wouldn't you have dust clouds? And wouldn't you even feel it on the ground? I mean, I don't know, because we've never... Nothing like that even came close to what we were doing with that many tanks rolling on the ground. Or any mechanized type thing coming at us. But, like, I don't know. It was... Again, just as a casual fan watching on the couch in my underwear, I'm just kind of confused uh, during that part. But... They did do a good job of, I think, showing how when you put nods on the night vision devices, it's not perfect. There's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of stuff happening in there. Um, that is true. The fog of war. The boogeyman is out there. The boogeyman is out there, and that puts people on edge. And and you're looking for a fight. You're expecting a fight, and you keep hearing rumors. You know these rumors that don't get squashed. You know they evolve into worse and worse and worse things. And um, and people see what they believe a lot of times. You know, you there's ranger school stories. Everybody has them about some crazy shit you see in the woods and things you hear. Like, I, I, always, I would always hear that in my ears, you know, thinking someone was what? talking to me. But it was nothing. Because um, you're always afraid of getting lost and, and that sort of thing. And so you're always, you know, think someone's telling you to do something. And, and it's actually completely imaginary. And... There's no way these guys at this point aren't dealing with some degree of sleep deprivation. Oh, yeah. And hunger. We know hunger. They haven't really gotten into the sleeping situation. You'll see guys sleeping under trucks and all that back and forth. But, like, yeah. And they're jaded. They're pissed off. You know, the the whole company leadership has come to a head with the, you know, uh, confronting that sort of issue. So, yeah, it's exhausting. It is so goddamn tiring. The fatigue. So they, uh, they're getting ready to roll out for their next mission and the chaplain shows up. And I just, I wrote down a note that chaplains are such sports, such good sports. Like the amount of stuff they put up with. Um, I don't think I've ever had a bad chaplain. I, they've always been friendly. They've always been available. And I think it, it might sound weird to people that haven't been in the military, but they put up with a lot. They put up with a lot. What that, what the Marine is rattling off to him in the middle of like that. I feel like I experienced that a dozen times. Chaplain oh. comes around and who can, who can offend the chaplain first? And the they answer is nobody. Thick skin. They are the goofiest people in a way because they have to be out of everybody, the most disarming, non-judgmental out of everybody. Um, because most people find them annoying in my opinion or experiences and you're right like and none of them are like they're not bad like they just it's a very interesting job um because they just go around sort of like pestering people just like that you know this guy almost seemed a little more aggressive i guess than what i'm used to my the ones that i've had were all just kind of they're their own sort of silly quirk, quirky maybe would be a better word of saying it um 
because they just have to be so disarming with these grunts who are just brutally honest and love to pick fights and to prod people and then pour salt, salt into wounds if they can. I mean, it's, they're relentless. And the chaplains are interesting in that they're kind of outside the chain of command. So you've got these full rank structures and then you've got this chaplain just bouncing around mm-hmm. anywhere, wherever they want to go, but for the most part, right? And they kind of just have free access, I, I guess is the best way to put it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I've, I feel like I've told this story before. So for those who've heard it, I'm sorry, but we had a soldier in the headquarters platoon, Sarah, who will go unnamed, but I'll tell you this, he had a cast at the beginning of the deployment. Mm. Got it? Yeah. Right. Um, we had the chaplain come out to our strong point and it was just, there might've been other people in the, the CP, but it was just a really small room. And it was at least me, the chaplain and this one soldier. And the chaplain was asking any big plans when you get home or what do you, I think he was going on leave. What are you going to do when you go on leave? And he just rattled off like the worst possible things that are only legal in like Amsterdam to do all in the same short period of time. I'm just sitting there and I know he's joking, but the chaplain just straight face, just took it all. And sounds like you've got some wonderful plans and I hope you can relax. And, and the soldier wasn't glossing over it. He was graphic. Like what he was describing was bad. I, I'm not going to say it here. Right. And the, the chaplain just, uh, wonderful. Well, I hope you find some time to relax and reflect and, uh, can't wait to have you back. See you soon. You know, like, my friend from high school, is, he's a chaplain, still is. You know, he's our age, active duty this whole time. Um, 82nd, all those units, you know. I think once, I think he did a stint in that airborne Alaskan unit too, you know. You know you're getting it in all those places. Um, but he's thick-skinned, man. So it's like he's probably great at it. And I yeah. haven't seen him really since high school. But I'm sure he's great and just probably the perfect role for it. Well, let's move on. The companies split up to do these different missions and Alpha Company's off trying to recover a captured Marine, it sounds like. Uh, that doesn't actually play out. Mm-hmm. They sit on the outskirts of this village, ah, city, I'll say city, outskirts of a city. And they watch as Republican Guard, uniformed Republican Guard soldiers, the Iraqi military, are walking around freely in the town. That was a weird change well yeah and really it's probably let's like let's just strategically talk about that situation i'm I'm guessing that's probably one of the follies right of the war is where these guys were sort of trusted army leaders but they weren't fanatics they were they a lot of them were bureaucrats and um they were probably trying to maintain law and order let's say and um, but we still viewed them as bad guys and completely displaced all of their, you know, it's like we wanted to get rid of their chain of command, sort of. But we got rid of I'm saying we maybe should have. This is the armchair quarterback part. Just got rid of the chain of command part, the Saddam sick offense, and then kept the guys in place to kind of everybody trust these guys, the squad leaders, platoon leaders, company commanders, even battalion commanders, probably. Um, to help maintain some sort of stability, some semblance of a government and all of that. Um, and those, cause those guys probably thought 
I'm just guessing here again, that uh, they weren't even the bad guys. You know what I mean? Like, that's probably why they, I'm saying that's why it was so strange, I think, and why they look so comfortable uh, standing on those balconies and things, because to us at that time, and us as viewers, we're like, what the hell? Like, we should be lighting these guys up, right? They're wearing a uniform. Let's kill them all. Um, because that was the attitude. That was a sentiment. Because it's fighting this sort of very odd. We were just talking about possibility of 100 and some tanks coming at you. So it's like we've got this conventional war stuff going on. But in reality, it's all under this umbrella of what ended up becoming counterinsurgency. So the... Uh... The guy that rolls in there in the helicopter, this is a piece of the war that I don't know a lot about, and I need to go back and do some research. He looks like you, Sayer, so I don't think it was you, but um, dude rolls in in some different camo and says he's got the Iraq Liberation Army of some sort with him. Is that supposed to be CIA? I get a Special Forces impression, but the way he's talking to a brigade commander is a little bit different. Because... I don't think he's Delta Force. Delta Force wouldn't be doing those type of things. The one dude, though. There's one dude. At least they showed one guy, right? I have the same questions you have. Um, I would guess either CIA or Special Forces, but but probably Special Force or probably CIA because it was one dude. So it's interesting to see. That. Interesting to see how quickly um, this whole joint mission came about right the mm-hmm. the idea was not a 20-year occupation of iraq but to um regime change i think is the the safe term um not a not a term a lot of people like but i think that's the stated mission at the time so regime change so yeah. there were these iraqi units that we were trying to tie into the fight i need to do some more research there but that did not last long and the Marines on the ground kind of laugh at it as soon as it happens, right? Before, yeah. during, and after, they kind of roll their eyes. And turns out, rightfully so, that, that offensive didn't last. Well, and that's kind of what I was getting at in my prior point, you know, with the Republican Guard guys. And I don't know. I'm probably, I'm probably sure success would have – it's somewhere in the middle there. You know what I mean? Because – we can't come in as Americans and just start killing every single person that's in the military and just wipe every single person out. But at the same time, you have to be, there's, there's cronyism, right? There's crooked people. They're looking for quick promotions or power, prestige. And now that their, their competition, their peers are out of the way, they can, they can now be the one uh, controlling the puppet spring, uh, strings and things like that. And all this shit, you're doing the deal with the devil sometimes it feels like um because but because you need to have buy-in um and then from the marines sake that's not what they signed up to do not in that time 2003 type shit right they're supposed to go straight through and you know take it all um the freaking marines and to be like and it's i'll i'll speak to one thing real quick um they were alpha company was attached to some other unit right and mm-hmm. i've been attached even to just a different company my platoon being attached to a different company for a month it really sucks and i think that they um they showed that really well because you're with the people that you don't really trust or like necessarily and um you got to do their sort of bullshit 
and you're like what the what are we doing here and then you got your guys all looking at you with that same sort of face like what the fuck are we doing and you got to kind of you got to deal with it um and then there's this feeling of being impotent right and that's that's the nature of the beast of course with the military and orders and all of that but um they went and took their sort of a uh, big dog the alpha company the guys that they really do sort of trust and and sent them off on this just weird ass mission that was confusing and then of course accomplished nothing and that goes and then i think that that leads me to what i thought was very interesting when when they're coming back and what does he tell the platoon leader um or what they're discussing in the car or the truck is uh you know their definition of success were two things essentially well none of us got killed and we didn't murder any civilians and it's like, that's where we're already at now into the still beginnings of this war that's still going on right now. You know, in about a year and a half, if we're still there, it's going to take Afghanistan over as the longest war in our country's history. And so, like, even in 03, in March of 03 or April, whenever this time frame is, they're still like, they're, they're already getting that nihilistic feelings going on of like, what the hell are we doing here? There's a part at the end of this fight, fight, I guess, scene, where they're rolling through the town and they see the Republican Guard leaving in trucks and it frustrates the Marines. They say, what are you going to let them go? Can't we shoot them up, kill them? And they let them go and they get frustrated. And I just want to take a moment to say, big picture on, on if we're talking about humanity, if there's letting the enemy go isn't always the worst thing in the world. Now, we don't know what that leads to, of course, but for all we know, those, I mean, those are, those are sons, brothers, fathers, friends that went on to live another day. Maybe half of them uh, fought alongside U.S. forces. Maybe half of them joined the insurgency. We don't know. It's tricky, but it, it goes both ways. Anytime there's a death in combat, it impacts not just the person and the family of the killed, but the person who did the killing. So I think it's easy to look at these troops leaving and say, light them up and go, but, you know, not knowing how it shakes out in the end. I, I feel the same way when you see German troops towards the end of World War II, just weeks before the surrender. And, and at times the allies would let them retreat rather than light them up. Well, those people might've gone on to live a, a happy life. So kind of it's a- like- yeah, it's like, man, I just, please, just go be a shopkeeper. I don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. Let's just go back. You know what I mean? Like, and I know that we had a lot of, here's a war story. Um, we did a lot of the gate guard at the beginning with uh, main securing the FOB, where we were at in Afghanistan. Our company did that. And so they got a lot of experience working that front post. And they're getting shot at all the time in the towers. Um, but the big thing was like controlling the flow of people in and out, good guys coming in, but then local nationals asking for help. And many times we would have what's called a military age male that's blown up or harmed and bullet wounded and probably by our bullets because he was a Taliban. He got blown up setting in an IED. Um, and I know that a lot of our guys would get frustrated, you know, because what did we do? We immediately bring them inside the gate, inside the wire. 
and bring them right directly to the aid station and start rendering first aid and um, to where, and then we let them go, you know? Um, we have our ways of seeing if they're in a system or something, but most aren't. And so patch them up and move along now. We're not interrogating them. We're not waterboarding them. You know, none of that stuff. We're just rendering first aid like if they went to a hospital. Like in the United States, if someone gets caught doing an atrocious, egregious thing, raping a child and they get shot, well, you know, they, they patch them up in the, in the ambulance and then they patch them up in the hospital. And we did the same. And um, I just know that, you know, the way I sort of always told our people was that, like, that's really what separates us from everyone in my opinion, like the fact that we, for one thing, to show the people that we have medical care, Taliban, that means Taliban can't do it on their own. They cannot provide that type of service because you know what? They can provide um, policing service. They can provide the courts, if you will, and and dispute resolution and security and um, regulating commerce with farming and all of those sort of things that you think a government would do, but they don't have that type of Um, medical sort of uh, abilities and I think it just goes to that big picture overall of like counterinsurgency of and it's that trick of what I'm going to say hard right over easy wrong you know shooting the guys in the back as they're going away it's that thing like yeah ROE's open yeah you can burn and raise a whole village because I guess they say you can but just because you can doesn't mean you should and what are the second and third order effects that we're all going to have to deal with and not even us personally, but there's going to be a unit. We already know someone's coming to replace us, you know, and like, and you don't want to be there forever. You don't want your kids to go there forever. Um, you don't want to make it your children's war. That's a good point that leads into the next part here. I wanted to get into there's this, there's mortars falling around the patrol. They shift back to Bravo company and they can't find the spotter. So they go to a nearby village and a spotter being somebody that's, when you're dropping a mortar around nine times out of 10, you can't see where it impacts. So you have to have somebody who's watching where the rounds impact and calls back and says, you're 50 meters short, you're 60 meters left, whatever it might be. And the mortar team then relatively well hidden can, or can be hidden, shifts the tube a little bit to make the fire more accurate. You don't need a spotter, but if you actually want to hit something, it's a good idea. And I think that leads the Marines into their first taste of this unconventional insurgency type warfare because the spotter isn't on a hillside behind sandbags protected by a machine gun he might be in this village with a cell phone and he might look like you or i in terms of no uniform on might be a woman might be a child and they have to get in there and start searching for you know how do you search for a guy with a cell phone in a town where people have cell phones um i don't know how to tell what cell phones military aged male you know, like, yeah, go ahead and take your pick. And that's another thing I think to me, at least it foreshadowed knowing what we know now when they're talking about all the trash alongside the road that's scattered about. I mean, first that what did that bring them to mind anything in your head when you're talking about that, all that stuff scattered about? It's not a good impression for the people who have to live there. I'm talking the IEDs that later. Oh, came. gotcha. You know what I mean? Like there's no threat now, but they're like, it's everywhere, and it's the same thing. Just like there are people everywhere with cell phones, in, a, in less than a year's time, they're going to be going down these roads that have trash strewn about all of them. And it's like, 
pick your poison on which route you take. I think this scene does a good job very briefly of showing how, if you think about it, how complicated this insurgency, irregular warfare, whatever you want to call it, becomes. Because they're looking for this spotter in what might be a hostile village. I mean, they, they were just taking fire on the outside, right? So this isn't just speculation. There's somebody within mortar range trying to kill them. So mm-hmm. there's somebody there that doesn't like them. So they go into this village and they start pulling people out. They have to be relatively aggressive um, because there could be people there trying to kill them, right? They were just under fire. But next thing you know, they've got the entire town out lying on their stomachs as they kick in doors and move room to room searching these buildings. And what it, you know, it didn't show anybody getting shot or even beat um, or anything like that. But all I could think of was, what if that happened here? If I was just cooking one day and, and Megan's watching TV with Etta and somebody kicks in the door, points a gun at my face, drags me outside while they rummage through the house. Like, you can see how quickly these actions can turn a population against, but I don't know what else you do. I think it speaks to the challenge of that type of warfare more than much, much more than the Marines conduct, which looked pretty good. Well, and then I, I'll tell you this, I know from the other side of the rifle on our side of it, it's very, it is very easy to make this mass presumption of like, okay, you know what? I got pop shots coming from this village. It's an unsympathetic village in its entirety because, you know, if they were good guys, let's say if they were good guys, they would point them out. They would tell us where they were. They wouldn't allow them to, to do that type of thing. And it's like, well, not really though. I mean, are they really going to, do you really expect people to like stand up and be vocal about this? Or, I mean, I think the human reaction is just to try to hide and cower in your basement or something and be like, you know, yeah, there's, there's some dickheads that live in the village, but the vast majority of people are probably just cowering, you know, trying to protect their family. And it's not this, where they're allowing all this maneuverability with the bad guys or, or like we're putting this duty upon the civilian that didn't ask to be here. They didn't ask for Saddam to be a dictator. They didn't ask for the Basque party to be the ruler. They didn't ask for Americans to be at their front door um, to all of a sudden have this obligation to point out every threat to the U S soldier. It's not, it's not true. It's not real. Um, Not realistic. But it's easy when you're fatigued and you're stressed and the boogeyman is out there and people are trying to kill you to kind of create these sort of blanket statements. And that's the bad path to go down towards dehumanization, which is always, you're always in a battle against that in war. It's a good point of they let it happen. And I remember you hear it and you read about it um, or experience it in, in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years where there's an IED outside this person's house. They let it happen. There's machine gun fire from that person's backyard. They let it happen. And I, if you really step back, I, I do think it's, what are they going to do? You know, if, if the U.S. military is here in force and we can't stop it, what is this 55-year-old man trying to keep up his guard and going to do to stop a squad of Taliban fighters to come in? And what's he going to do? It's a tough right. spot. Yeah. Before we get, I want to carry on with that thought back to the civilian impact here, but got to talk briefly about the, the patrol coming under fire from an anti-aircraft gun. Oof. So 
they called it a Zeus ZSU 24 ZSU 23-4 I think is the the uh the mechanized version of this they didn't show it enough to see whether it was actually mounted on tracks or or a more fixed position but either way the thing fires 23 millimeter rounds if I'm not mistaken which for mm. comparison's sake is twice the size of a 50 cal 50 cal's 12 and 12 and a half 12.7 right. yeah damn big rounds which right. is why they just went straight through some of those humpies right oh yeah well i mean shit a 50 would <laughs> yeah. um well a 240 would you know like an rpk yeah, would that's what they're rolling um yeah i mean that is such the interesting thing about this these this war or this battle is the conventional aspect of the gear because they did have it wasn't just because i think in 20th century or 21st century guerrilla warfare maybe let's just say 20th not 21st but 20th century guerrilla warfare i think what comes to mind is going to be an ak-47 and an rpg and ieds um, yeah an rpk and maybe maybe they've got this dish just cached somewhere right um when we have 50s mounted on everything you know uh which is they're just a pure equivalent but to have like an anti-aircraft gun which is like when i'm picking me again as a guy in my underwear on the couch anti-aircraft gun i think world war ii and i think navy that's what i think about those type of guns you know this one had four cannons yes it was four cannons spin out exactly do you know do you not know why i said it like that when we first got to Afghanistan in 2010, I went with my fire support NCO over to the aviation headquarters. The guys, um, because that task force was down there flying Apaches, Kiowas and everything over uh, yeah. Kandahar, based out of Kandahar airfield. And, All night. They, and they had a fire support team, mm-hmm. right? So Fisters, 13 series. And he knew them somehow. So we went over there to talk and the guy right away started showing us pictures and said, we think there's a ZSU in Zari district one of these mm. and I, I vaguely remember it popping up on on you know we take off in an operation or something it would pop up from time to time um never saw it never heard it um but the fear from the aviators was like well that come on you know that would shred a kiowa right oh, I, yeah. I, I don't know for certain but i have a pretty strong feeling it would shred an apache like that's interesting. I don't know that question because I think a Dishko would shred a Kiowa um, if they got the shots off. So I think it would most definitely shred a Kiowa. Apache, that's an interesting, you know, and that's the thing, though. We sat there for weeks before, a few weeks before we pushed out, and that's all we heard were the boogeyman stories. All we heard were the what ifs and the pot, you know, it's, it's that telephone game. And there was a green, wherever that story came from that got reported all the way down to this unit, it came from something. Um, And maybe there was one, maybe they had one. There was lots of Chinese munitions that we found and things like that. Um, Or old Soviet ones, of course. But maybe they did have it. You know, we just don't know. We don't know. We just know bad guys are out there doing their damnedest and will die to the last man trying to kill us. That's all that we actually knew at that time. And it was true. The pictures I remember seeing were um, barrels, because they were taken from aerial photos, right? Barrels sticking out of 
you could recreate this by taking an old uh, cart and sticking a bunch of pitchforks in one side, just like a a bunch of hay. Mm -hmm. And if you take a quick picture, it looks like a ZS23-4 covered with hay with barrels sticking out. But it also could be just some hay with pitchforks next to it. It, So you can't strike that target. Um, Yeah, it could be 140 tanks or it could be a stationary village. So anyways, let's bounce uh, over to a little more civilian interaction here when they set up the roadblock north of town, waiting for the rest of the Marines to push through. And they're just in a blocking position, trying to stop anybody coming out of the town. And they get into this experience of having to fire warning shots, which I don't know the right way to say successful, unsuccessful. It's not super clear. They fire warning shots at a car that turns around and goes back. Then they fire them at a truck that doesn't stop and kill everybody in the truck. It, it makes you then some military aged males, as we'd call them, get out of the truck and try to run makes it seem like they were hostile. But I just want to talk about that whole concept for a second, because again, if you put yourself in their shoes, what do you do if you're a civilian, right? It's, it, it's a little bit like the Salem witch trials where you throw them, throw, you know, bind their hands or whatever, throw them in the water. If they sink, they weren't a witch. And right. if they, if they float and, and stay afloat, then they are a witch and you burn them. If you're a family trying to flee the fighting on the one road out of the city and warning shots start coming your way. What do you do? Do you turn around and go back towards the Marines? You know what I mean? I don't think you keep driving forward. I think I know that much. Um, As for whether you stop, as for whether you stop and get out, as for whether you just turn around, I don't know. I don't know. That's the war is hell part. Um, there's a piece to this city part. There's a piece that's worth adding just for more context. It's not like there's this specific path laid out to everybody where it's, there's going to be, when you hit 500 meters, there's going to be two warning shots at 400 meters. There's going to be four warning shots. And at 200 meters, you're going to be like, they didn't know that. Right. So like these, these cars flying along at night when the warning shots come overhead, it's, they don't even know there's a, a unit there, let alone it's American or Iraqi or whatever. So they're having to make these calculations of the fly, and it's a tough spot to be in. There's no perfect decisions, you know, and it's like, and you st- you're still protecting your guys over sort of all else in a lot of ways. Um, and they were stretched thin, and they were in a very precarious spot. Um you know, and that's a part of it. The leadership put them in a position like that to make these type of decisions. And you have to make a decision. And I don't know if there's a good, there are, there's no perfect decision in any of these scenarios. Cause I'll tell you what, letting them keep driving or continue, that's not the right, that's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. Um, so they, they don't have people to do checkpoints, nor do they even care necessarily. They're told to lock it down you know, they lock it down and, and they are in an area at the end of the day that the ROE is, you know, they're not breaking ROE and they don't set the ROE. The people that are higher up and let's say smarter 
I'm not going to say smarter, but have the more information are the ones making those sort of decisions. And um, you just, you have to go with the information you have and you have to make a decision. And then guess what? That's where violence of action happens. Because when you say nobody comes past this line, then nobody fucking comes past. And that's just what it is. I labeled the last episode or titled the last episode, War is Nasty, um, because we had some civilian deaths on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to think that it wasn't a good title because that's going to kind of be recurring here. I mean, this episode comes to a close with a child, a young girl killed in the back seat because they didn't stop fast enough or didn't mm-hmm. know the Americans were there. And uh, you hit the nail on the head. What do you do? It's putting people and it's, it's the circumstance in any conflict. We're just happy to focus on the U.S. and Iraq conflict in 2003 we're asking a lot of those people to make split second life and death decisions and there's civilians caught in the middle and it's nasty. People end up dying that in a perfect world shouldn't die. Yeah. It's they're They're horrible decisions to have to make, but it doesn't mean you, I mean, you have to make a decision and that's what you're trained to do. You've done, you know, hopefully you've done a, hundred scenarios like this in practice before so this even if it's your first time in the in the shit doing it you, you've done it before i mean man i had a time it could have been a very bad day and i don't know what was happening i mean i still don't know the truth behind any of it but man uh with uh, very close to lighting up a whole car you know and i would have lived with that decision had we done it um because taliban dressed as women in the back and you know we had this whole women thing and everybody was all worried about the women well they do that to trick you um and we ended up walking away and letting the ana handle it maybe that you know and and i walked away thinking anas are going to get blown up and we're going to have to deal with that because they didn't listen to me it ended up being a very bad well it ended up being okay let's say but it could (laughs) have man just a, a tinge of a different tilt or in one different direction it could have turned south it was a very high tense, tense sort of environment uh, where you got vehicles coming right down the middle of your formation and they're not stopping and you don't want to kill a family. You don't want to do those things. And thankfully, we were able to sort of de-escalate in our way of doing it. But um, you don't know anybody's intent from inside a vehicle when they're moving at you. You know what I mean? And you're yelling at them. You don't know their intent. Because you do know that there's a lot of intent out there to try to kill you because you're in no man's land. You know, you're in Indian country. So it's, um, yeah. Uh, And then you got to obviously live with the, you know, you just have to live with the decisions you make at the time you make them. There are no perfect, there are, war clearly is not a perfect scenario. It's the most imperfect of it all, which kind of makes it the most human experience there is in a way. Everything is raw cut to the bone of you know everything is exposed well i think we're going to see more of that again in the next episode called burning dog kind of have a feeling where this is going right. i think that'll wrap it up for episode four sayer thanks for doing this man yeah man we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon yeah yeah hey thanks for listening to war stories If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. 
We'll see you next time.